Morning, everyone. <clears throat> I just came back from a week at uh, Jay Pathak's church in Denver, Colorado. And um, I just want to say, you know, Putty's an excellent communicator. Uh, Jay is his equal. And uh, they're both great. Uh, Jay is very clear and really funny. And, and Putty can be funny too, but Putty, Putty delves into deep theology and opens your brain up to new things that you've never really considered before. But it's going to be a great conference. All right, um, someone asked me a week or so ago why I don't tell jokes anymore. And so, by popular demand, <laughs> that's the joke right there, yeah. Okay, so here you go. These, my jokes are very intelligent, so you really have to listen, okay? If you don't laugh, that indicates something about... All right, a cement mixer and a prison bus crashed on the highway. Police advise citizens to look out for a group of hardened criminals. Okay. See where this one gets us. Where do hamburgers take their sweethearts on Valentine's Day to dance? To the meatball. All right. Maybe two more. One more. If you laugh at this one, I'll tell you the next one, too. Um, why did the taxi driver get fired? Uh, because passengers didn't like it when he went the extra mile. Okay. Okay, that's enough. I'll give you the last one, too. Oh, no, this was crazy. I shouldn't tell this one. What did the nose say to the finger? Stop picking on me. All right. Let's pray. Yeah, we need to pray. We need prayer. Father, uh, as we approach Scripture right now, we just ask you to open our hearts and our minds. Jesus, just like it says in Luke 24, that you opened the minds of your apostles to understand Scripture. We know we live in that openness today. And, and we just ask, as you instructed Jesus, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. We say, Holy Spirit, come and teach us and bring truth to our hearts in a life-changing way this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we're starting actually a new section of Matthew this morning uh, called the Sermon on the Mount. This is a, a turning po point in the book because Jesus has been in ministry for about a year now. It's about a year earlier that he had been baptized. Uh, he's attracted crowds, and people are coming from far and wide to hear Jesus speak, to hear him preach, to see him heal. So Matthew 5, 6, and 7, these three chapters all comprise one sermon, one message that Jesus gave. We call it the message on the mount. Now, if you know the Bible, you know in the Gospel of Luke, there is a message that people often call the message on the mount, but they're different. And there are some major differences between the two messages. And that's because if you look carefully, you will see they're not the same message. The message on the mount, it starts off saying Jesus went up into a mountain. Now, in Luke's gospel, it says Jesus came down out of the mountain to a plain. And so he gave this message more than one time, and it didn't come out exactly the same each time. It's just like the message I gave this first service is not identical to this message, although it has the same main thrust. 
And did you know this? Very interesting thing. In the three years of Jesus' ministry, three to three and a half years, all, all of those days, uh, 365 days for each of those, each of those years and, and half that for the half year, the Gospels record 35 days of Jesus' ministry. Do you hear that? One month out of how many months? 36 to 42 months. And so he preached the same messages over and over, I believe. Like he, he's in Galilee, he preaches this Sermon on the Mount. He comes down south in, uh, to Judea, he preaches the same message, maybe in bits and pieces or in another place. And so this message and the one in Luke are not identical, and that's why they, uh, that's why they, they differ. Now, to understand the Sermon on the Mount, you, we have to have the same mentality that the Jewish people of Jesus' day had. And their basic mentality was based upon suffering and promise. They were constantly experiencing suffering, difficulty, and pain. They were constantly being uh, taken over by other nations. They had a couple of two different occasions. Their whole population was carried away to another land. Now, currently, as Jesus is teaching them, they are under the oppression of the Romans. The Romans are ruling them, and they have to submit to Roman rule. And so they're used to that. But they also lived on the basis of promise because God had promised them in the Old Testament that the day was coming when a new age would enter the world, and this new age would be a time of peace and prosperity and blessing, and particularly for the nation of Israel, they would be blessed by God. And so they live with that promise, and they're anticipating that promise. That's their hope. And, and they're confident that when the genuine believers were confident that when Messiah comes, he's going to usher in this coming age, this new age of peace and prosperity that comes from God. Now, another way to refer to that is the kingdom of God. And in Matthew, Matthew calls it the kingdom of heaven. And by calling it the kingdom of heaven, he's tying more directly into what's happening in the heavenlies and, and that happening on earth. And that's why in the Lord's Prayer, we were taught to pray, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is where? In heaven. And so he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Luke calls it the kingdom of God. They're the same thing. And so what I want to do to start with is this. I, I want to tell you why I chose the title, uh, Christus Victor, because there is an emphasis on Jesus as the victorious one. And this 5 through 7, Matthew 5 through 7, these are all possible. What he's teaching is possible because he is the victorious one. Because he came into this world. And, and listen, his whole life was a confrontation of darkness. Confrontation with darkness. Confront, he, he was confronting the future kingdom age and he was bringing that in and confronting this present evil age just by his presence. Because the kingdom, Jesus is the king. You know if you have the king, you have the kingdom. And so every person Jesus healed was an affront to this present evil age that they were living in. Every person that he taught, every time, everything that he did that blessed people and taught them how to, how to live with each other, that was all 
coming from the kingdom age, which he himself embodied and brought into the world. Now, when he died on the cross, when he rose from the dead, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father, that's when he actually poured the Spirit out. And that's when people actually, although they had been living in the presence of the kingdom all along, that's when they actually engaged with the kingdom at a deep heart level. And so these people that he's preaching to here in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, they haven't gotten there yet. Now, they're, again, they're in the presence of the kingdom because Jesus is there, but the kingdom has not been fully integrated into their life yet, and it hasn't yet, yet been fully implanted on this earth, this re-implanted on the world, because it started out with the kingdom here, Adam and Eve in the garden, living under God's rule. And so, it's going to be hard for them really to grasp a lot of the stuff he teaches them in the Sermon on the Mount, but they will. And Jesus said in uh, the Upper Room Discourse to his apostles, uh, he said, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and he's going to teach you everything, and he's going to bring to remembrance everything I've said to you. And so, what he was saying to them was, okay, you don't get this all right now, guys. Okay, I get that. But the day's coming, and it's not that far off at that point in the upper room, and it's not that far off right now as we read Matthew 5, maybe a couple years. The day's coming when you will understand what I meant when I said that you've heard, you've heard that it's been said, don't murder, but I say to you, don't even be angry with your brother. And so he takes everything to a whole new level and a depth of heart engagement with God that they probably just didn't quite grasp entirely. But as I just said, they will very soon. I just want to read this passage to you, Isaiah 35. It's one of the great promises from the Old Testament that the Jews of Jesus' time would have memorized and quoted and lived on. I mean, when you're having a bad day, uh, do you have a favorite passage of Scripture you go to? You know, we probably, most of us do. But here, this would be a passage they would have gone back to over and over again. It starts off like this. It says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Here he personifies the desert, and uh, the dry desert represents loss. It represents devastation, a loss of prosperity. You can't do much with a desert. But when water comes and refreshing comes, it's something brand new that's happening. And so that's his emphasis here. All right, pardon me there. So he goes on, and so based on that, look at the good things that are coming. So strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. And so this, they see what's coming 
You know, the blessing of the deserts being renewed represents prosperity and life and blessing. And then he says, so when you're facing something really hard, encourage each other with this and and tell them, be strong. And then verse 5, he says, when this happens, when the kingdom comes, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like the deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. It goes on, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And again, just this picture of the land itself being restored and renewed and and the prosperity of God's blessing when the kingdom comes. And then verse eight, uh, just beautiful passage. It says, a highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. And the unclean shall not pass over it. That means only people who've come to know Jesus are going to get to walk on this highway. And it shall belong to those who walk on the way, those who have followed, those who have submitted their hearts and lives to the Lord, only to those who walk on the way. And then it says this, even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. Now, he's, the Bible talks about fools that says the fool has said in his heart there is no God. It's not talking like, it, this is just an expression. It's like saying, look, even an idiot will be able to stay on that road, okay? Doesn't make any difference, you know, how bright they are or whatever. It's going to be clear. You get on that path, you're going to stay on it because God's going to keep you on it. That's his emphasis there. And then it goes on to this, and it says, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And then this, and the ransomed or the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. You see, this highway of holiness leads to Zion, Jerusalem, which is the picture here of intimacy with God and a place with God. And so the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, for these people crowding to Jesus out in the wilderness to listen to him, this is what they're listening for. This is their hope. This is what strengthens their hearts and keeps them going, the hope of the kingdom coming. And so what we we see that they failed to see was that when the Messiah comes this first time, what he was going to do was do everything it takes to crush the power of the enemy and put the kingdom of God, implant the kingdom of God back on this planet. And as I said already, he did that through his cross, through the resurrection, and through the ascension to, to back to the Father. And so what he did was he brought the kingdom and restored it to the earth, but he did not eliminate the counter kingdom. He did not eliminate the kingdom of darkness from the earth. And you might say, well, why not? Why didn't he just take care of it all right there? Well, God's original plan was for human beings to fill the earth, for human beings to subdue the earth, and for human beings to rule over the earth. That's what he wanted in partnership with us. He wanted wanted us to be the ones that fill, subdue, and rule the earth. And so what he's done is to reverse the effect of what Adam did 
And he gives back to his people, to believers now, authority and power to fill the earth with image bearers. That's what he wanted. God wanted to be able to look at this planet and he wanted to be able to see his image spread all over the planet. And if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, that's what would have happened. Because that garden would have just kept expanding and expanding as more and more human beings were being born and serving God, tending the garden. It would have ultimately gone throughout the whole earth, which would have been subduing the earth. And then it would have been up to people to live with the earth and to manage it. And so God's giving us now in this season of time the authority and the power to fulfill that original commission. However, today what we need to do is bring people into faith in Jesus. That's how we produce image bearers. When we lead people to faith in Jesus Christ, they get new hearts. Every human being is in the image of God. But when you get a new heart, you begin to actually look like Jesus. And so the Father can look to the earth and he can see his image spread all over the earth. That's what his heart is. That's what he calls us to. And we get to be part of that. And the Beatitudes describe the character of kingdom of God people. People who have received new hearts. When we get that new heart from God, being born again is what the Bible calls it. You get a new heart that is preloaded with kingdom values. It's pre, your heart is inclined, my heart, our hearts are inclined towards kingdom values. And so it's not like I have to add that to my life. Uh, th- think, just think of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. I don't have to add love to my life. What I have to do is release it. I don't have to add patience. Now, I can try to add patience in, you know, through different techniques and stuff like that. But really, I have that already in me. Uh, it has to be released. So I have to figure out what is it that's, that's messing up the work so that it's not being released. But this, this whole point here is that when you get this new heart, you have a, a kingdom of God heart, and you are a kingdom of God person, and Jesus is describing that type of person here in the Beatitudes. So they haven't, they haven't fully accessed the kingdom, but it's coming very quickly, just a couple years away when Jesus completes his, his life work here on this planet and goes back to the Father. Now, Derek Morphew uh, is a theologian from South Africa. He's a vineyard guy, and he, he's written one of the best books on the kingdom of God you ever find. It's simply called Breakthrough. His name is Derek Morphew. And um, actually, uh, Wilson, my son, one of our executive pastors here, is uh, in a mentoring relationship with Derek Morphew right now with a, with a group of other um, leaders, five or six other leaders, that, that they're really being mentored by Derek Morphew in this whole theology of the kingdom, which is really a privilege and exciting thing for him. And he's challenging my thinking all the time uh, with, with what he's learning. But I'm just really thankful for that. And I wanna read you a couple quotes from Derek Morphew, okay? From his book, Breakthrough. First one's on page 176. And it says this, the teachings of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount were not given in the context of entering the kingdom for the first time. In other words, he's not trying to tell you, live this way and you'll get into heaven. It's not like this is how you become a Christian or this is how you become a believer. But he goes on to say, this focuses on the quality of life demonstrated by those who have entered the kingdom, responded to the gracious intervention of God, and experienced the new birth. 
And so it's not intended for people that don't know Christ. It's intended to show people who do know Christ what really is true about who they are in their identity and at the core of who they are. And so you go on to the next quote on page 177. He says here, the Beatitudes can only be understood against the background of the presence of the future. This future kingdom, this coming age that, is, that God promises, the Isaiah 35 passage type of, type of future. He says, Christians or people who have met Jesus, uh, and to meet Jesus is the end, therefore you have encountered the future when you meet Jesus. Yet at the same time, we live in this world. Oh, wait a second, let me back up. We've been taken out of this present world and already live by the powers of the age to come. That's a key statement. We have already been taken out of this present world and already live by the powers of the age to come. Yet at the same time, we live in this world. We are caught in the tension between two worlds. But the power, reality, and values of the kingdom determine our lives rather than the standards of this world. You get that again. The power, reality, and values of the kingdom determine our lives rather than the standards of this world. Now, what that means is that this whole sermon he gave is countercultural. It's counter to what most of us have grown up believing. And even if we grew up in a really good Christian home, we still live in a culture that is permeated with thinking that is counter to the message that Jesus gives because his message is a countercultural message. It pushes against the darkness of this world. So let's read the Beatitudes, then we're going to look at just three of them this morning. This is the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. So verse 1, it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. Now, bless, he began to teach them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, it takes a, a little unexpected turn here. And he says, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, start with the word blessed, blessing. A, a blessing in the Bible, the New Testament word blessing derives much of its meaning from the Old Testament concept of blessing. And the concept of blessing in the Bible means to be favored by God. It means to experience God's goodness. Have you ever seen those hats or t-shirts with the saying, life is good on them, and the little stick man walking along? Well, that's kind of like talking about blessing. Life is good. Blessedness is this inner sense of peace and well-being that you can have in spite of what troubles you might be facing in life. 
And so there's this problem and that problem and that problem, but you are able to say, you know, I feel okay about it all because I'm trusting God and he's got my life in his hands and um, I, I think everything's okay. Everything's okay. Just an inner sense of well-being about life. And so this is a pretty powerful thing what Jesus does here. Uh, you know, it does say when the, he saw the crowds, he went up to the mountain, opened his mouth and began saying, giving them this countercultural approach to life. And verse three is the first blessing. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit, what does that mean? Some people try to equate that simply with physical poverty. And in Luke's gospel, where uh, he gives a similar message to this, it does just say, blessed are the poor. And it, it seems to be leaning more in the direction of talking about material poverty. But here, he is clearly talking about spiritual poverty. Not, not physical poverty, but spiritual poverty. And it's the, the poor in spirit. And so the poor in spirit refers to those who have an empty heart, uh, an empty spirit, and they know it. They're spiritually, they have nothing to bring to God. They recognize that. And spiritually, they just, they recognize there's something missing in their life. You know, as they used to say, uh, at least I haven't heard this for many years, but there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of every human being. And so they have encountered that God-shaped hole and they see it's missing and they say, you know, as, as hard as I have tried to fill that hole, I haven't been able to do it. And so there's no, not only this sense of spiritual inability and poverty, but there's a recognition of it. And when a person recognizes that, and as Derek Morphew said, they turn to God for his mercy and grace, what happens is God responds by applying everything Jesus did to their life. They get a new heart, they're born again, get a kingdom of God heart with kingdom of God values already in it. And so this, this starts off talking about how a person actually becomes part of the kingdom of God. It is through humility and a recognition of my spiritual need and coming to God, recognizing that it's only based on his mercy through his son, Jesus Christ, that I can become whole and that I can know him and begin to have a life with him. And when I do that, he says, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's present tense. It's not like, well, when you die, you get to go to heaven. No, he's, he says here, it, it's theirs right now. So, you know, you can have people that are materially poor and yet proud and would never turn to Jesus. And you can have people who are materially poor and yet maybe inclined to recognize their inability because of the physical difficulties they face and, and turn to God. But you can have the same thing with wealthy people. You can have wealthy people who know that their wealth is a gift from God and they live their life and they use their wealth to honor God and to bless others. And you can have wealthy people that are proud and arrogant and would never admit any, any weakness or any flaw. And so uh, whichever way you look at this, it's not talking about physical poverty, but simply about spiritual poverty. And Jesus illustrates this in Luke 8, verses 9 through 14. He gives us this parable, and it says this. It says, he also told this parable 
to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So here's what Jesus says. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So he picks two people who are like at opposite ends of the uh, supposed spiritual moral uh, spectrum in Israel because a Pharisee would have been considered one of the top religious people in the land. They were very, uh, they were very dedicated to all sorts of, uh, of legal restrictions that they lived by and therefore thought they were righteous. And tax collectors were considered to be kind of like the scum of the earth because they worked for the Romans. And so the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself. Some people make a big deal out of it that it says he was praying to himself. That he might not have known it, but he wasn't really praying to God. But, but he said this, he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all that I get. But then the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So those who recognize their spiritual poverty are justified in God's eyes, come into his kingdom, receive new hearts and new life. Now, the second thing is this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And each one of these has a tendency to build on the last or be somehow attached to the previous one. So those who have seen their own spiritual poverty have experienced salvation, new heart, new spiritual insight into life, and and they begin to see the world through God's eyes and their heart begins to beat with the heart of God, and they look at the world, they look at suffering around them, they look at people that are being rejected or, or, or maybe deceived by the enemy and they're destroying their own lives. They look and they grieve for that because that's what God does. And so they mourn over the pains and the brokenness in this world. And they, they look at it and, and, and see the effects of the fallenness of man on this whole planet and, and on, on people all around this planet, and it touches their heart in a very deep way so that they, they actually grieve over the condition of the world. Now, the opposite of this would be, let, would be cynicism. It would be the heart that looks and sees the grieving and the problems and all of the pain and heartache out there, and, and it hardens its heart against that. And, and it maybe even looks at, looks at all of the pain and says, well, they're probably getting what they deserve, that sort of thing. But this is a soft heart towards God and towards people. And so they, act, they actually take on God's heart for people, a heart of love and concern. Now, it doesn't mean, as some people I think have taken it, that, uh, that you become kind of nasty in your spirit, frustrated and angry because somebody's, no, no one's doing anything about it all. And I've seen people who've gotten angry at the church and they have a thing about the church or against the church 
body at large, I mean, and, you know, the church across America and around the world, and, and their whole heart thing is, if this church, if the church would just be what it's supposed to be, then the suffering would be able to stop the suffering around the world. And that's not what this is talking about, because if you buy into that type of thinking, then you're buying into a worldly philosophy that says that you're justified to judge other people. And so it's not the countercultural view of mourning with the grieving and with the, with the, um, with the world situation. But it, so it's not being angry at the church or politicians even, you know, for making bad decisions or bad laws. Uh, it's one thing to say, I don't like that law. I disagree with that law. I'm voting in a way to maybe get that law overturned if I can. It's another thing to have a hook in my heart towards a class of people or an individual person and, and to, uh, to, to think that I have the right to judge them. It just wrecks my own heart when I do that. That's all. It just wrecks my own heart. And, and it spills over into all my relationships. You know, you can't be bitter just against one person. If you have bitterness, that's in your heart. And everybody that bumps into you, bitterness comes out. And you might smile, you might try to control it and try to do your best. Well, this is my family, I'm gonna be nice to them, but those people out there better watch out. Well, when I think that about them, then that splashes over onto my family and the people I love as well. And so we've really got to submit our hearts to God and allow him to give us tender hearts, even to the point that we experience pain of others and we experience the grief that uh, is filling this whole world. And so it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean a, a bitter heart. And it doesn't mean that you give up joy and peace either. You know, Jesus, it says in Hebrews 1, 9, that God anointed Jesus with the spirit of gladness above all his brethren, what that means is that everybody that hung out with Jesus, all the people that were around Jesus, he was the happiest guy in the crowd. He, he was the guy that had the spirit of joy, the spirit of gladness on him all the time. But what this does mean is that I, that I do nevertheless carry a burden in my heart for what's happening in the world and for the people that need to know Jesus and for all the broken marriages and the children being brought up in homes where they're, they're uh, being abused or they're being neglected. And, and I have a heart for that. And, and yet, I'm able to also, as Jesus did, live with credible joy. And the heart kind of bubbles to the surface, that heart of mourning, like it did for Jesus in Matthew 23, when it said, Jesus looked at Jerusalem. He's at a point where he can see the whole city. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Th that was a statement of mourning, of a lament on Jesus' part. But he, he, that wasn't Jesus all the time. And so we need to be careful that we don't walk around with this pain, sad, sad and hard. That's not what he's calling us to because those who mourn are gonna be comforted. And isn't it odd that if you want to have comfort in this world and in this life, the way you get it is through allowing God's heart to, to uh, blend with your heart so much that you can actually feel God's pain for the world. That's how you get God's comfort. And so we go on. He says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. I think this is easily the most under misunderstood of all of the Beatitudes. 
But meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. It's strength under control. They, they use the illustration, I've read this multiple times in the Greek language, and et cetera, of a horse that has been tamed, a wild horse that has been tamed. All the power is still there, and that power is released when the rider says it will be released. And when the rider says stand still, the horse stands still. When the rider says gallop, run as fast as you can, the horse runs as fast as it can. The power is all still there. It's just being controlled by its, its Lord. And so meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is putting my life and the personality that he's given me and the intelligence and the, the personal power in life is putting under his control. It's putting under him. So that there are times like with Moses when they, they had their backs up against the Red Sea and um, God speaks to Moses and says, stand still and behold the salvation of your God. And so he's saying to Moses, okay, don't do anything. Everybody, have a seat, pull out the lawn chairs, watch what God's gonna do. And God parts the water, he parts the Red Sea. He did something they couldn't have done on their own. But then he says, all right, why are you all standing around? Get moving, get up and move. And so there's a time to stand still and there's a time to move. And those are both meekness when we're following the Father's direction and leading in whether we should stand up and whether we should move ahead. So meekness, I just want to say this, it is not shyness, it is not fear of conflict, it is not being timid or fearful of harm, it, it, it refers to those who have and recognize their strength and they completely and totally submit it to God. Like Jesus before Pilate, uh, he gave him no answer put up no defense. He didn't defend himself, except when Pilate says, don't you know I have authority over you? And Jesus said, the only authority you have is what's been given to you by God. But he didn't defend himself. Now, on the other hand, there was a time when Jesus waded straight into a murderous, irate, well-armed mob ready to stone a woman to death. I mean, you think about that. These people are ready to stone this woman to death. They have big stones in their hands and in their pockets, and they'll use them. And Jesus did not hesitate to walk right into the center of that group and look them all in the eye and say, you know, who, who among you has no sin? And I heard someone say recently, you know, Jesus wrote on the ground. The only thing we ever hear about Jesus writing, and none of the gospels uh, recorded what it was, so um, we kind of wish they had they must not have known either. And so that, that was meekness. On the one hand, not defending himself. On the other hand, stepping into, into harm's way courageously and boldly to represent what God wanted. So meekness, meekness trusts God with your, your reputation. Meekness trusts God with your future, with your dreams. Meekness trusts God with offenses that are brought against it. Meekness trusts God with everything you are and everything you will be. And that means sometimes God says, okay, this is the time to stand up and speak. And other times God says, no, this is the time not to stand up and speak. Now, a week ago I gave in my message, I, I talked a lot about my father if you were here to hear it. 
And my message was really about my testimony, how I came to faith in Jesus and the things that what my life was like leading up to me actually accepting Christ. And so I talked about my dad's life in connection with that. And there were a lot of uh, negative things in my life before I came to Christ. So a lot of the stuff I shared about my dad would have taken that tone on. But my dad also taught me some really good things, many, many, many really good things. And one of the things he taught me was this. He said, Van, he said, it's not the first guy who hits that starts a fight. He said, it's the guy who hits back because it takes more than one hit for it to be a fight. And so he said, think carefully before you hit back. Think carefully about that before you hit back. Do you want to start a fight or not? Now, that came to me uh, shortly after we came here to Cincinnati, came here to pastor another church, a church filled with good people. But the, the message that I brought and the direction I led, which is what I told them I would do before I came, they decided that they didn't want to go that direction, and there was a lot of, a lot of disruption in the church, and there were a few key people that were, um, that were stirring revolt, if you put it, want to put it that way, or at least stirring um, everyone else against the direction that I was leading the church. And so, um, came to the point where I just thought, well, it's just not worth it to stay here and fight, because God had called us to the city of Cincinnati before we even heard of this church, and so uh, we resigned. You know, with the, with the knowledge, we're, we're called to Cincinnati, we are going to plant another church, it'll probably be a vineyard, and, um, and worked that through with the elder board, and the elder board, uh, after we talked it all through, they were very gracious. They gave us a great severance package, knowing that we were going to plant a church, and they and, and treated us well. They prayed for us our last Sunday there to bless us, which, which I think was a really significant thing to, to have their blessing when we left there to plant this church. But then um, a couple of the guys that had been in strong opposition to the direction I was leading the church came onto the elder board, and they wrote a letter which did not ever get approved by the elder board, although the elders saw it, but they didn't approve it. And they sent it out about me and why I had resigned. And they said some things in the letter that um, were not really directly lies, but it was, it was vague enough that you would look at that and you'd think, you, you could think anything you wanted to think about it. And so I had a guy write, call me and say, Van, he said, are you gonna write a letter to the church and clear this up? And my dad's words came back to me. And I said, you know, I said, the people there that hate me are gonna hate me still. The people that love me know that's ridiculous what they said. And there are several hundred people in between those two groups that will be hurt if I make this into a fight. And I said, I'm not writing any letters. I'm not doing anything. I'm gonna focus on what God's called me to do and move ahead with that. And believe me, my tendency was I want to defend myself. You know, I, I want to clear this up, but um, really chose not to. And as a result of that, uh, a couple of other key people, one who I think had just gone off the elder board and another one who was still on the elder board stood up and protested that letter and said, we didn't approve that letter. And we disagree with what it said. And they did more to validate me than I could have ever done myself. And so when it says trust in the Lord, it's, that's exactly what it means. You put your life in God's hands and you say, God, if I'm gonna be, if I'm gonna be vindicated, you're gonna have to do it. 
And, and as I said, there are times to write the letter. But if, if you do, it needs to be with love and kindness. And, and I want to say this to the people that wrote that letter. We're not bad people. They, just, they thought they were doing what God wanted them to do. And so I, I don't have any you know, ill feelings towards them at all. But my point is, we can trust God. We can trust God with our reputations, with our futures, with whether we get the promotion or not, with, with all of that, we can trust God. And, and lean into the idea that it's okay to speak up when God tells you to. And when he does, you speak up with a good heart, no bitterness, not out of anxiety or revenge, but just, just, just clear heart. And it's okay not to when God tells you not to. And either one, you can trust God with. So I'm gonna invite our prayer teams to come up because I think God wants to do some stuff in people's lives today. And um, our prayer teams are here to pray with you about anything you have a need for, whether it's physical healing or um, if it's emotional healing or just some problem you're facing or if one of these character traits that we talked about today really strikes you. Uh, before the service, we prayed and came up with this, that we believe God did want to deal with heart issues today, both physical heart issues and spiritual heart issues. And so if there's something in your heart spiritually, unforgiveness or something else that you need to deal with, come and get prayer. If you're having physical issues with your heart, get prayer. The other thing was freedom. And so freedom to be what God wants us to be. If that speaks to you, neck pain. Uh, someone had a word about neck pain. Uh, sitting down here earlier, I, I got this, that someone here has a spider bite. And um, we want to pray for you about that. And if that's you, if I'm right, and I might be wrong about that, but if I'm right about that, then the first thing you need to know is God cares enough about you to tell me about that. Okay? And not that it's life-threatening for you, but it's just something that happened to tell you how much God loves you. And this other one, um, I just had this sense that there's someone here who lost a son. And if I'm right, this is gonna, this is gonna uh, hopefully really bless you, but you've said, I'll believe when I hear God say my son's name. So my sense is someone here has lost a son and you've had this in your mind, I'll believe or I'll get right with God, whatever that means when God says my son's name. So, I felt like God wanted me to say this name, the name Bobby. Just the name Bobby. So if I'm right about that, please come and tell me. I'd love to pray with you. And if I'm wrong about that, then okay. But um, would you stand with me? And Father, we, just, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we can walk in your blessing. Even when we face difficulty, we can say we're at peace, we're blessed. Thank you that we get to come into your kingdom just freely out of your grace and everything Jesus did for us. Thank you, God, that we can walk in blessing, that we can, we can walk with your heart towards the world. 
and express that heart to others. And thank you, God, that you do call us to meekness. Not weakness, but just meekness, Lord. Just what do you want me to do next, God? It's kind of like you've got a sword in your pocket, but you only pull it out when God says to. So, Father, we submit that to you in Jesus' name. Amen.